Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, well, it is time once again for Cody Townsend and me to review the news of July, and most of that news is kind of related to the outdoor industry. You know the drill. And I guess it's kind of becoming the norm in these conversations, but we talk about some really important things, but we also throw in a few ridiculous things too. So we got a lot going on in this one, and I do want to say again at the top of this episode thanks to those of you who submitted those mountain town advice questions best way to continue to submit those is to go to the blisterreview.com website where it says contact us and you can send us an email with the appropriate title of mountain town advice and we will go through those and I was actually hoping we were going to get more red than we did today, but we're going to do our best here. It's just sometimes, you know, it's hard to get Cody to shut up sometimes. So apologies, but some very good questions came in and I think we provided a few good answers to some of those. So thanks again for those. And if you are enjoying the Blister podcast, of course, we would very much appreciate it if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, mostly so that Cody will just stop making 100 listener jokes. So help us out here, especially if you do enjoy the podcast. And that's all we got. And so now let's review some news. Here we go. All right, Cody Townsend, it's July 31st. Exactly 3.30 Mountain Time. By the way, when we talk times, you always write me in Pacific Time and then I have to convert. I feel like our world in particular should just, like, Mountain Time is effectively Greenwich Mean Time. No. Pacific Standard Time is far (laughs) more important and everyone should adjust to me. (laughs) It's just kind of like, you know, when you live in California and grew up here. You don't oh, think you have an accent uh-huh. because you just have a normal, you just speak English normally. Everyone else has accents. Same goes for standard wow. time, PPST. Everyone else lives in different time zones. Civic standard time. It's the only one that matters. Well, <laughs> it's weird how so many people can't stand Californians. <laughs> weird. Super weird. I don't know why. It's We're so not arrogant and egocentric. We're, we, we don't think the world revolves around us, that we're leap years ahead of everybody else, that we have the fifth largest economy in the world. It's super weird. <laughs> it's all right. Anyway, well, I like our timing here. I feel like I'm about to jinx the entire world. I was going to make a statement about how surely nothing could happen in these last hours of the month of July. I'm going to not say that in order to not jinx the world, but um, let's review the news of July, except for like these final, whatever, eight or nine hours. 
about that? Sounds great. Um, yeah. So <laughs> this month, I mean, it's kind of generally slower month. I mean, you and I are both, I believe, to call ourselves primarily skiers, uh, you know, mountain biking, running and all those other sports are kind of more hobbies. So we're not quite as focused on the news of that world. I think we're generally focused on skiing. So July month is uh, typically pretty quite slow for skiing, but we got some we got some good things coming up. We do. And not just ski news. We're at work. We've got a diverse array of topics and several mountain town advice questions. Yeah. Uh, the mountain town advice segment, it's it's picking up some steam. We also have your most Canadian news segment again. I, I really wondered, honestly, I didn't have a lot of faith in you on that one. I was like, is this going to be the only time that there is a segment that is run once <laughs> and then kind of never again? But you're, you, you deliver it again. Yeah. I mean, like, I spent like, I don't know, I spent like 10 plus years in Canada. I, I keep up to date with what's going on in our friendly brothers up north. And uh, yeah, and I, I don't know. I think it's always kind of funny reading Canadian news stories. I listen to the CBC. I listen to like this good CBC uh, science podcast. Like they're, that, Canadians got it going on. They got it going on. Well, where would you like us to kick things off first here. Well, I think this was something that uh, your fellow compatriot Luke brought up. He probably wanted mm, some more info. Copy. Yes. Um, he wanted some more info about this and it was related to a post I put up on Wednesday about this symposium that I did with Onyx Maps um, in Bozeman, Montana. Um, and I got a lot of comments and I think a lot of people wanted to know more about it. Um, I will say it's kind of funny these days. Everyone Everyone's super pissed off about the Instagram algorithm and how they're pretty much turning Instagram into TikTok. And I got to say, I'm probably one of those old people that's pretty annoyed with it because you can get like 75 mm -hmm. comments on a on a post and still get like only a fraction of the amount of likes I used to get. Just engagement is going through the roof or not through the roof uh, into the basement. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's my old man gripe for the moment. Um, but anyways, uh, the symposium that Luke wanted to know more about um, was pretty interesting. So uh, it was a private symposium. I actually originally thought it was a public symposium. It was private for a specific reason because they brought together three groups and they were essentially hunters, off-roaders and uh, human powered users. So representing their three different user groups and maps being Onyx Hunt, Onyx uh, Backcountry and Onyx Off-Road. And we were there to just like hash out the differences. And it was pretty interesting. It literally started off with uh, what do you think are the perceptions of this user group? And we have these like private polling and you just throw in words um, for each group. So the group would be like, you know, like off-roaders and people would put mean words up there and it was just throwing it out there. It was just like straight up. It's like off-roaders are like white trash, um, destruction and all these kind of adjectives. And then hunters are like killers and conservatives and all this stuff on uh, backcountry users are elitist and, uh, you know, angry or something like that. It was just like, whoa, we got that out of the way quickly. Um, and then it just opened up into a, com a conversation among all groups of like the challenges that each groups face, um, how each group is handling uh, access and stewardship. Um, and then at the end of it, they were actually offering some funding for kind of starting something that you want to 
you want to build yourself in the stewardship and access space. So um, it was pretty fascinating. Um, it was it, it, it was definitely different people. Like we are very siloed in our kind of ski, mountain bike, climb, that side of outdoor culture. Um, and so hearing from off-roaders and hearing from hunters, um, hearing the challenges they have and like they're all kind of similar, but like at the same time, like in many ways, very different. And, uh, I don't know. It was just an interesting experiment and what comes of it. I don't know, but it was, uh, the first time they've done something like that. And I kind of hope to see something like it in the future and maybe start to go more public with it too. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I feel like I've been thinking about this quite a bit somewhat recently and in part of it like when you and I have been talking about golf on this podcast in these reviewing the news conversations like why don't we think of golfers as part of the quote unquote outdoor community when literally all golfers play golf outdoors mm-hmm. i think it's a little bit of that right and just thinking through like how do we expand or why don't we expand the sort of umbrella for like who counts as being part of like our, and that's for everyone listening to this, whether you're the off-roader or the golfer or whatever, like our outdoor community. And I think the idea of expanding that sort of circus tent, as it were, strikes me as increasingly important. Yeah, to me, I've always thought that Hunters and human-powered backcountry users need to form an alliance because of what the hunting community has done for wildland protection is it dwarfs what we have done. Um, totally. You know, obviously they have like a hundred year head start uh, onto it in many ways, but like a lot of the lands that you and I access in the backcountry, um, the national forest service, even ski areas is there because of the, the, the roots of hunting. Um, so like, we have a lot to be thankful for. And I think there's things to learn from it. Um, and I've, I've, Although politically, you know, the groups might end up being quite different, like they kind of want similar things. And uh, so I've always thought more alliances is better than divisions. And, you know, the divisions are ultimately kind of what what creates chaos. Like I've seen it here in the Tahoe Basin when there was chaos going between human powered users and snowmobile off-road users. Um, And the Forest Service, because it got so ugly and because it got so messy, the Forest Service just decided to do nothing. They did not make a ruling on this planned uh, oh, over snow vehicle um, plan that they did. And you're just like, well, that's not good. <laughs> like we, we, we'd be better if we could work together and it'd be better if each side knows that you might end up having to make some sacrifices. And I think that was a lot of the theme of this kind of symposium is in certain places, each group has to make sacrifices. But um, as long as we can work together, we're going to be far more powerful um, to preserve wildland access, to address some of these issues. Um, so so uh, ultimately, the takeaway was, I mean, my personal takeaway was that like social media is just the worst place in the world to have positive discourse. And if you meet people face to face, it's like how easily you can relate to people at that moment and like become friends with them and want to work with them. It's just it's so much better. Well, yeah, as you said, will be interesting to see where this all goes. And I'd love to see. Yeah, more of this happening. This seems like a step in the right direction. Totally. And you know, that that golf thing, I actually did think of kind of why we don't consider golf an outdoor sport and maybe even like 
I mean, football, it's played outside. Sometimes it's played inside, but the most part it's played outside. Uh, I did think of something and I don't know if this, uh, if this meets or makes, uh, meets your criteria or if you can kind of jive with it. But ultimately I thought the differences between like what we consider outdoor sports and then those kind of sports, the stick and ball sports would be that the central thesis of sports like golf and football and baseball is competition. Like there is a score that is very, very central to the act of doing that sport. Like, I don't know anyone that goes play golf and then like never even thinks about the score or par. You know, you might not take score for that day or something if you're just playing around with your friends, but it's still like kind of central to what you do. Whereas like our sports that we actively do are much more about the experience. Sure, you can have competitions in them, but they are mainly practiced for the experience. And that was my only kind of thing I felt like was a dividing line between them that falls under the like good observation for sure and yet i don't see why that's the thing that ought to completely sort of separate these different activities one you kind of keep score every time you go do it when you go skiing or mountain bike you're typically not keeping score anyway but yeah well done (laughs) that's like some serious uh forensic investigative work you pulled off there cody we're we're proud of you i, I don't know i'm I, that's like five minutes of thinking i don't think if that would get me a <laughs> phd in philosophy right there trying to find, figure out the esoteric differences between sports <laughs> maybe you could go do a phd in that now that you have this topic though I, it could be like you just try to get through with like the world's shortest thesis. dissertation <laughs> totally Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would I? Yeah. Do, I don't know how to defend it. I don't know. How, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> I would just like put it on Twitter We're, and be like, "There you go." <laughs> boom. PhD. Yeah. Where are we going next? Um, the next story. So this is a ski industry story, and it's coming in the off mm-hmm. season. So generally, we're going to be thinking about some pretty wild stories. And this story is probably one of the most wild stories I've read in the ski industry in a while. And it is by no means uh, finished. It is ongoing, and it yeah. is very complex. And I think you and I both, we discussed about it a little bit before. It's hard to really figure out what the hell is going on with it. but to get yeah. to the point. So, um, uh, a couple groups, mainly lift blog and Stuart at, um, storm skiing journal have been following what's happening at gunstock mountain in new hampshire and gunstock new ha- um, mountain in new hampshire small community run ski area and the headline perfectly kind of sums it up it says band of yep. nitwits hijacks gunstock ski areas future uncertain so i originally saw this because just because i saw this like a thing on twitter of being pretty much the entire executive staff of gunstock uh, resigned from their positions in unison. So the top 10 people that work there just resigned in one day. And you're like, wait, what's going on here? And Stuart does an incredible job of covering this. I don't think there's any sort of way you and I could kind of sum this up in a way that Mm -hmm. the listeners could understand it. So I'm going to just tell everyone, read this story. It's really well done. Yeah, please. Um, and it's pretty fascinating, but My quick summation of it is that uh, 
the Gunstock Mountain is run essentially by the, the community. And there's a five-person board that oversees the people that run it. So if any normal company, you have a, a board of directors and that board of directors usually was within the company and or outside with other kind of uh, titans of industry, people with a lot of reputation. Well, this is done by the government. That It's not a board of directors that's corporate. It's done by the community. Um, and then kind of what has happened in the last couple of years was there was a manager, Tom Day. Um, he seemed to turn around Gunstock. They were, did have some financial issues in the past few years, and they've been kind of on an upward trajectory um, as a great independent ski area. Um, and he goes through some of the stuff and how much money they have in the bank and these capital improvements they're going to be doing. And it's just like, oh, this is a story of an independent ski area being successful. Awesome. And then this two people came in on the commission. Um, um, and there's a Doug Lampert, owner of a welding company, and David Strang, an ER doctor, who, according to the Boston Globe, signed a 2020 letter arguing that New Hampshire should succeed and become a free and independent state. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a, a primer as to what maybe these two people's mm -hmm political motivations are. Um, and since that, their appointments, it's just gone pretty much apeshit. Uh, um, I, again, I can't totally figure out what's going on other than it seems like the worst power struggle you can ever happen. And the entire executive staff quit in unison. And as it stands right now, the ski area is not going to be open, um, which is possibly the worst outcome. Yeah. And in this article, I think Stewart does a really, really good job of sort of setting up the backstory, detailing the history of gun stock, detailing the significant improvements that Tom Day and his team made to turn this into what ought to be an incredible success story. We have talked a lot in these reviewing the news conversations about the role and the place of small local ski areas. The conversation that I published last week with Will Brandenburg was specifically on this topic. So if you're reading kind of the first half of this article, you'd be kind of standing and cheering like, this is phenomenal, well done, you know, to the leadership at Gunstock, you know, and it feels like the kind of thing where... <laughs> We ought to be talking to Tom Day and seeing like what kind of things could other local ski hills and other areas maybe learn from what you've done, right? And then instead, this story just takes a freaking turn and it does very much seem like in particular, two individuals got appointed to this commission and they're just like, now nah, we're going to run shit now. And you can read the rest for yourself. It's so heartbreaking, I think, given those of us who do care about smaller local mountain towns and local communities and so many of the things that we talk about in terms of the inner workings of, you know, kind of the ski industry in general, to sort of see what is a success story and it just get cratered. For as far as I can tell, either completely idiotic reasons or completely egotistical reasons. Uh, now, look, the one caveat I want to make, if 
there is more to this story and more information is unearthed, then we will need to sort of go back and maybe there is some legitimate reason for why Ness and Strang kind of have acted this way. But right now, that's extremely unclear. Yeah, there there is definitely some accusations of corporate malfeasance, of accounting errors, and you know the the commission saying that they need to uh, approve every single legal expense and pretty much every single capex expense that comes through there, which is mm-hmm. asinine. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, uh, I believe from these people's comments they're on the conservative side and you want to talk about making government more slow and more terrible um you know make a commission have to approve every single line item that comes through a ski area and you're not going to have a a very efficient business but um you know the like one of the things that got brought out and um there's been a couple things as this keeps going on going was that saying that tom day um the ceo of gunstock had improperly donated money to another uh politician for a campaign fund um but and so he's saying that like taxpayers are funding other potential elections and whatnot and saying that's you know completely wrong when that was as tom came and responded to publicly of saying like that's in the budget every year which the commission approves um that is something that they do as a business as something that kind of every business does so that is they they'd already signed off on that <laughs> um, so then they can't necessarily come back to it um but then there was this letter that came out um that one of the commissioners had wrote um and it was a little bit like kind of vague as what the accusations were and then at the end of it it says that you know the 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 executives might have connections to groups that are funded by George Soros. So all of a sudden right there, you know, okay, this is batshit crazy. Like if you start throwing out conspiracy theories of uh, George Soros funded kind of bullshit that people immediately grasp onto in pretty much any scenario that they can't have a good explanation for, you know, that this is like, Hey, these are potentially crazy people, um, which it does seem like. Um, but if there is like, let's say that there was some stuff you're like, uh, that, Tom Day potentially did that wasn't necessarily uh, approved by the commission or that the community might look down upon. Well, don't do the thing that so many people are doing these days. So many politicians, things that have happened with the the, uh, election in 2020 and the big lie is like, we're investigating, we're investigating and keep kicking the can down the road because Mm -hmm. they don't have time to keep kicking the can down the road with this thing. Like ski areas have to start getting their plans and getting going now. Like if they're going to open in September, October or November, that's going to come up really quick. And currently they have absolutely no staff to run the ski area. So if you come, if you say that there is some corporate malfeasance, you got two weeks. Otherwise you need to, you need to resign because you're lobbying accusations that are unfounded. Um, And that's where like this whole story, like to me, it just, it's. It's kind of a sign of the times in many ways where where politics has gotten so ugly in so many circumstances where truth and fiction are not even factors into it. You can just lobby accusations. You can just say whatever you want to say. You can try and acquire power through whatever means you want. It's just like this is what's happening and this is what feels like such an issue in today's world. Yeah. And. To quote a couple sentences from Stewart's article, 
Stewart writes, Day and other senior leaders have stated that they would return if Ness and Strang are removed from the commission. Strang's term is up in November, Ness's in 2024. It seems unlikely that either would be removed by the politicians who appointed them, and in fact, with Kaidesh's resignation, there is now an additional seat to fill, and it will be done by the same group that appointed Strang and Lambert. My thought here, assuming that Ness and Strang are primarily interested in the success of Gunstock, the ongoing success of Gunstock, I should say. And the importance of Gunstock for the community, for the enjoyment of skiers, et cetera, et cetera, then I think they ought to resign. And if they don't care, first and foremost, about the continued success of Gunstock, well, then frankly, they're not the right people for the job, right? But when it is said that Day and other senior leaders will come back, if these two folks go, from everything that I've seen and read so far, we need Day and the other senior leaders back at Gunstock. So Ness and Strang, apparently there was a, let's say um, diplomatically, a difference in management styles here or a difference in vision. So you be the two that step back. You weren't there when Gunstock, when the ship was righted at Gunstock. And so it's not like they're the two that sort of turned things around. So it seems to me they should resign. And we sort of go back to having a successful local ski area to be able to celebrate. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I think there's a quote in here from one of the meetings, and it just kind of sums everything up. Um, Then according to Day, at the monthly commission meeting in June, the commissioners asked, do you know who runs the ski area? Yes, Day says he responded, I do. No, Commissioner Strang responded, the Gunstock Area Commission runs the ski area, which goes back to, no, the community runs the ski area. And I know that these five people are supposed to be representatives of the community, but considering what has been going Going on with ongoing meetings and more and more people showing up, more and more people within the community yeah. calling for the resignation. Well, then there you go. The community is telling you, like, you guys aren't representing us accurately. Um, and yeah. I hope that's what ends up happening, that the community ends up having the ultimate say in this. Because if the community was happy with what was going on at Gunstock, which I think yeah. they were, it sounded like it, it was framed as that, like, things have been going well there, then then the, 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 the whole thing wins if the community gets what they want out of this because it's a community-run ski area. So um, if a five-person board that wants a bunch of power in New Hampshire to secede from the union um, have that power, then it's they're not representing the community accurately. So um, yeah, that's it's it's kind of frustrating story. Um, It's ongoing. I will say I did just read that Peter Ness did step down, um, but that still leaves two other commissioners, um, mainly Dr. Strange, who has been kind of the biggest thorn in the side, it seems like, to this whole process. So we'll see where it goes from here. But um, hoping for the best, mainly for the people that ski Gunstock and call that place home. Yeah. And and honestly, man, I'll, I will say, I mean, if if that's true, I had not seen that. If if yep. if Ness did step down, I'm happy to be as charitable as possible here. Yep. Right. 
A difference in visions, a difference of approach, that happens. That's understandable in life. And if Ness did step down and it was like, uh, okay, we got off and we just have, there is a clear conflict here about future direction and I'm going to be the one that steps back, then I will applaud that. I think that's the charitable thing to do. And um, again, all we want to see is this ski area and this community flourish. And I hope all the players involved can truly and legitimately say that, claim that, and mean that. Yeah. I'll I'll go back to this. Anyway. I just looked this up and I've got to say this may be the first time that, you know, we're going back to something that we have uh, introed was that there's actually a uh, emergency meeting today at 1.30. So it's mm. kind of ongoing right now. So <laughs> mm. we might not be covering all the news of July, unfortunately. Mm. There we go. Well, I have said before, I think Gunstock is my favorite name of any ski area anywhere. That was uh, Warner Nickerson's home mountain, as I as I recall. And so, I used to ski with uh, Warner. I used to race against him. Yeah, so. yeah. Warner is probably the person who's told me most about Gunstock. And uh, anyway, here's uh, here's rooting for Gunstock in the community for sure. Well, where are we going next? Okay, well, kind of going to one of our tried and true stories. Um, mm. You know, access. And overcrowding, which seems to be more and more of a thing these days. I feel like we're seeing it in everywhere. But uh, there's a story from Gear Junkie um, and specifically to uh, Red Rock Canyon out of Las Vegas. Uh, headline is Red Rock Canyon Conflict Access Fund Stands Up to BLM. Um, so this article was presented to me. I found it on Twitter and it was talking kind of snarkily about how um, the access fund, so the the fund that was started generally in the climbing space, um, was pushing back on the BLM who was pushing for uh, having an entrance fee to get into Red Rock Canyon. Um, and it was posted snarkily because they were saying, oh, all of a sudden environmentalists are pushing back when it's going to cost money. Um, because what's happening here is that things are getting destroyed. Um, things, you know, the 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 land is uh, taking hits um, because of so many people going in there. So there there is actual... Um, effects that overcrowding is having on the land. So the BLM is trying to figure that out. Um, this has kind of been a topic that we've gone through a lot. I think a lot of the times, like when it comes to national parks, for me, I've been very adamant about like, oh, whatever, they're on roads. You know, the crowding in Yellowstone uh, really doesn't uh, go outside the road. I've been there multiple times and you hike five minutes off the road and you'll see not a soul, but you'll be stuck in traffic for three hours. So, but here people are getting out of the car hiking. There's issues of graffiti. There's issues of rocks being destroyed, um, uh, you know, flora and fauna being destroyed so they're trying to do something and blm is saying like hey let's try to figure out a way to get less people by adding more money access fund is saying no let's not think about money so i wanted to come to this conversation specifically with an idea that we may have because this topic comes up a lot it was talked about at that symposium where you're like how do we create permit systems um do we create you know uh invites do we create fees to get in and i kind of had an idea and i wanted to shoot it across your bow and i was hoping you had an idea outside of the box um that isn't just cost people money so that'll help people right. pe keep people away well and by the way there was a request for public comments yes. right on this and i think that probably just closed 
not too long ago. So I have not yet seen if we've learned anything interesting about like the public comments period. Yeah, I haven't seen anything else about the public comments. Um, BLM usually does have a public comments. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of government mm -hmm. things do, but BLM yeah. specifically, I've seen a lot about it. But anyways, to my idea, um, this idea, I don't think would totally work in a public comment because I think there would be a lot of infrastructure needed for it. And I also think you would need a lot of extra funding to make it happen. But it could be potentially a solution that could be used for all wildlands. But like, Instead of costing people money, which seems like a very simple, easy way to restrict access, don't cost people money. Money costs them time. Um, I don't know what that time necessarily would be like, but I want to include something that is more like educational. So... Uh, for instance, when you are skiing in Glacier National Park on Rogers Pass, um, they have a lot of issues with parking and illegal parking areas because they're doing avalanche control. Um, so in order to get a permit to ski on Rogers Pass, you have to take a test. So you have to go through this like 45 minutes of studying and then take a test after it. And it gives you essentially all the knowledge to know where to park, how to check for um, the, the avalanche closures for the day, where they're going to be bombing, where you can and can't ski. And if you get caught without a permit, you're going to get fined for it. Um, and if you get caught in a, a closed or restricted area where they're going to be bombing that day, you might close down skiing entirely um, because it is kind of a nuisance for the national park in certain ways. They're trying to, to balance keeping a road safe from avalanches and backcountry users. Um, so same sort of thing, but take that to national parks, wildlands. Um, make, make it so that you have to do maybe four 45 minutes of study and do a quick little online test um, that covers history, ecology, and ethics. So people are not only, um, you know, taking the time to learn how to behave out there, what's going on out there, maybe the history to this place and why it's important, but then you're also potentially restricting the amount of people that are going in there because not everyone wants to pay time. But then all of a sudden we don't have um, an issue when it comes to economics. Like for, you know, $20 to a rich person is nobody, nothing, but $20 to a family that wants to go there for the first time has never, you know, been in the outdoors or from Vegas. They're like, let's go out to Red Rocks. I know Alex Honnold climbs out there. Let's say we saw a free solo. We want right. to go visit it in 20 bucks. Right. You're like, what the hell? $20 to visit our public lands? That seems like a lot. So um, having some sort of educational component, um, something that costs people more time than anything, maybe a little bit of thinking, um, to me seems like one of the better solutions because you and I talk about it all the time. We're all for education first. Um, that's right. Not rules, not, not laws, you know, create education. Yeah. And maybe that's the barrier to entry. That's where the friction is. And like, maybe you can show up if you show up at the, um, you know, the entrance and you hadn't taken the online test, well, you can go inside and do a two-hour test or whatever, or two-hour study, or just sit through two hours of, of video or classes or whatnot, and then you can enter. I just, I just feel like there's a better way than um, costing people money. And I don't know, that's my very simplistic, not super well thought out plan, but uh, hmm. I think it kind of kills a lot of birds with one stone. It's funny, when you started talking and sharing this answer, I was like, yeah, Cody, that's kind of stupid because it's never going to work. And yet, like, it is the thing. Like, 
it's and it seems stupid only because we have such a different model. Our model is you just pay. We, we always pay. You pay to get access to a movie. You pay to go to Disneyland. You just if you want to go somewhere, you pay to do it. But I do really like the educational component. It is something we bang that drum all the time. And I I think it's the right drum to be banging. And the idea that, you know, hey, let's go to, you know, this national park on the East Coast or that national park on the West Coast. The idea that you would in general need to actually like learn a little bit about the history before you get there, that would only kind of prime the pump, right? In a, I think a thoughtful way, a good way. And so, yeah, we're talking about, or what you're talking about is clearly at like an entire new system. But so what? Like we come up with new systems, you know? And um, the other thing that the article does talk about, and I think some potentially, like I think the more simple, straightforward, like let's be like less creative here. I still, as I have said on previous episodes, I probably am generally in favor of the reservation system. I think we use reservations in a lot of other walks of life. And so if we don't want to go to simply a, well, now you got to pay 20 bucks to get in. If we're not doing that, or we want to try to minimize that price of entry, I think a reservation system makes a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm actually for it. It's probably a simpler thing to element than your education system, which is not, I'm not here to say, so that means we shouldn't go your route, but we could probably, it's a probably quicker solution to get to reservations. And I think that would be a good educational component in its own, right? Where we're just like, hey, people, we need to stop all trying to go to these same spots, probably usually on weekends and probably at a very specific similar time of the day, right? So. Yeah, reservation system, perhaps in combination with an educational component, is starting to get us into a bit of a ballpark, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, I think as a simple term, like reservations, I think would be better and something you'd, it's more turnkey than an entire system that's based upon education. But I don't know, just for myself, when I go to places, like I love reading books about that place that I'm in. Um, you know, I went to Crete last year and I downloaded as many books about Crete as I could. Um, and it's really fun. And so, and I think it overall increases your experience. It's why there's tours and museums and why you will rent the headphones and go through because you're like looking at a piece of art and you're like, hey, cool, it's a cool piece of art. And then someone's talking to you about what it actually means is a significance. And and uh, the person, the artist and themselves, and you uh, appreciate your your time there. So I, I don't know. I would just love to see like almost an educational component to be the cost to get in as opposed to anything else. And I think that's important. Like we we talk about it all the time of like, oh, the more you people go and experience the outdoors, the more, more they want to become advocates for it. Well, um, Maybe not everybody and to other people not, but maybe you're going to capture that person that goes under Red Rocks and they learn some of the ecology of it and some of the history of it and why this place is special and why it's preserved. And then they're like, yeah, I want to become an advocate for the outdoors after one two hour cl class and then walked around and checked out how rad it was. So, but I do think it, 
it is probably a little bit of a dream scenario, but I would love to see like some tests, you know, like, Hey, try it, try yeah. it out at a couple national parks and see if I see if it works. Yeah. So, all right, next, next talking about world cup downhill mountain bike racing. This is interesting. What's going on here, Cody? Um, so this was sent over by Luke, who's becoming a good, good researcher for this podcast. Luke is just killing it. Luke Kappa is just good at everything. And now even like unasked, he's just like, let me help you and Cody out with your reviewing the news segments. And we just open these docs now and find these like excellent tidbits from Luke. So yeah, Luke Kappa, good at everything. Totally. So uh, this is a story from Pink Bike, um, and it's a video and story, uh, World Cup downhill riders on the developing union effort. So the World Cup downhill, um, the organization and broadcast rights were recently sold to Discovery um, and the Discovery Channel. And in response, uh, the riders have decided to form a union to represent their interests to essentially their new owners, which is pretty astounding. I don't know if I've heard of any sort of action sport athlete union out there. I don't even see, think if I've ever heard of an actual attempt to do one. Um, it's something I've thought about a lot um, because, you know, we're constantly as individuals, as athletes, trying to prove our value. Well, you know, as individuals, you end up competing against each other. There's a lot of like downsides as a as an individual um it's hard to collectively bargain as an individual there's things in contracts that i used to try to get removed from my contracts um, because i just thought they were completely unjust um hmm. one of which was that essentially certain ways uh certain companies they might be able to rescind your contract and not pay you if you get injured and you're not able to perform your sport which you're like wait a minute my sport is inherently dangerous and you tell me I need to be very good at this in order to receive this contract. But then you're saying if I get hurt, then, you know, I, you might not pay me. You could just pull the, pull the plug on it entirely, which is just, wow. You know, you're sitting there on the couch with a blown knee and a $60,000 medical bills and you lose your sponsors at the same time. That's horrible. As an individual, I was never able to kind of push back against that. Um, just never had the power, but as a collective, you might be able to do something like that. So I'm pretty, pretty fascinated by this because it's something that I've been interested in. And, you know, I know a lot of people will probably roll their eyes at like athletes and you think we have dream lives and we don't actually work. And so they would just be like, why do you want to form a union? Well, because exactly what I just told you, I bet if people knew some of this, the actual details that we don't go public with often because we don't want to complain about our jobs because they are awesome, mm -hmm. then they might think that like, oh, yeah, that's a really terrible employment situation. So as a union, um, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see what they what they come up with. Yeah. And I mean, I have to say it's it's been pretty cool. A number of the riders, I think, have spoken very well about why they're doing what they're doing and, you know, have said like, we're, you know, we're not just trying to be <laughs> difficult here. Call it a union, call it an association. Like, that's fine. We just want a bit more clarity and a bit more say. And I, I, the one that resonates, frankly, primarily for me which is not to say that it is the most important level or the the most important concern. But anybody that's watched a World Cup DH race, that shit is terrifying. And the riders just saying like we get no say whatsoever about the tracks. 
Yeah. I sure as hell wouldn't be stepping on like any of those. And like, well, no, of course not. I couldn't begin to hang on these World Cup courses. But to go out there and be like, well, I'm a professional and like, I guess I got to run this as fast as I possibly can. It is terrifying. And well, sometimes the the riders themselves are terrified, right? And I just think, man, if ever it was easy to feel sympathy it was like, how about these people that, I mean, it doesn't feel like an overstatement to say are quite literally putting their lives, certainly their health on the line. When you're getting into a start gate at these on these tracks, just to be able to, for them to have input on these tracks, among other concerns and interests, that only makes a ton of sense to me. That's where the the interest of being an athlete, because you're willingly getting in that start gate. And sometimes I don't like to use the argument, you know, you we're putting our lives on the line. Well, you're like, well, you don't have to do it. Um, and you, you don't have to start. But when all of a sudden you put the pressure of competition into there and you see that other people are maybe willing because maybe two other people have far more risk tolerance than you. Um, or they might not just be seeing that 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 one corner and that one tree that isn't well padded. And, you know, you know, people are going to go flying into that. You know, those are the kind of things that you're like, well, when you act as a union, you're not you're going to work together. Um, I will say, I think one of the reasons why the free ride world tour has been successful and that athletes want to be on is when they started, they kind of had an athlete's board um, that was a representative for the day. So um, quite often, like I was on the board one or two years for the Freeride World Tour, and we were supposed to be representatives of the whole competition. And we would go into morning meetings after they ran safety, after they cut, you know, uh, did AVI control, um, got to check the face, and they would give us reports. And then we would, they would leave it up to the board to say, like, hey, we're not running today. And it was pretty interesting in that sort of way. And I think there's been plenty of times, and we don't see it publicly, where the competitions get canceled, get postponed get, uh, you know, postponed months, um, if not, you know, entirely removed, because the board who represents the athletes says, like, we're not running those conditions. And it definitely was pressure. I remember being on it because you want to make sure that people are going to be safe and you're not trying to push uh, your own kind of desires for that day into it. But uh, I think it was it was a good way to do it. Um, this is interesting because it's like, obviously, they're, they have a new owner, they have new competitors, and they're going to probably try and step up into the plate in their own sort of way. So, um, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's cool to see these athletes. I think so far, it looks like they're just conducting themselves very well and being really thoughtful and well-spoken and, and it's not just one person, right. But like the things that I have heard from a number of athletes, it's, uh, it's been impressive. And so, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll stay tuned and I hope it all, you know, I hope the talks are good and that. Once again, <laughs> be nice to see in our world um, different sides with different interests get to come together and arrive at a outcome that is good for all. Yay, optimism. <laughs> Totally. And I think that's the thing with about unions. It's not like the, you can tell from the, these athletes and not like they're sitting there going like we demand like 70% of the proceeds and, you know, a million dollar payout. Like they, they know, like when you're, you got to work together. So at least they're coming to yeah. the, to the bargaining table with the owners in a 
probably in a very good faith way of saying like, Hey, we want some, want some calls on safety. We want some calls on the courses. We want some calls on, and potentially in uh you know, prize money and compensation, but it's not like they're going to bleed you dry because if we bleed you dry, we're not going to exist anymore. So um, it'd be a cool story to follow. And I wonder if it's going to inspire anything else. Well, where to next? So yeah. Oh, my favorite segment. And I, I, you know, I, we don't have music for this yet, but I do have my favorite Canadians ever. Um, the do 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 the Bob and Doug McKenzie. Do you know those? <laughs> you don't know Bob and Doug Wait, McKenzie? Well, okay. Apparently, no. Unless you are referring to Strange Brew. Strange Brew. I don't know. Bob and Doug McKenzie. It was like they. No, is it Strange Brew? No, they hosted yeah. the sketch show um, Great White North. Rick Moranis, you remember? That's strange. Oh, okay, that is. God, uh, it's been a while. Wow. But anyways. <laughs> Look at me. Yeah. Knowing more about Canada than you. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe I just only caught it on YouTube because I'm younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so our most Canadian news story of the month. So actually, this was the, the least Canadian news story of the month. Yeah, um, probably the least. Because I probably was shocked by this in many different ways um so uh i saw it from someone that was riding the bike park in whistler of putting a social update a story of saying like gunshots running and fleeing ditched our bikes in the the um the line and i've immediately thought it was like holy shit was there a mass shooting in uh in whistler village and thankfully there was not but still there was a shooting in whistler village and uh, left two people dead and the two suspects um, who have been charged were caught in this. So like one, I feel like this is wildly non-Canadian because of just one gun violence, our gun violence in America compared to theirs, even though they have um, just about a, a, the amount, same amount of guns per capita as America is uh, theirs is 2.02 gun death rate and ours is 12. Um, so yeah, we're, we're doing, uh, not so well on that front. So the fact that it was one, there was gun violence it happened in Whistler of all places, um, very non-Canadian, but then two reading the story, like may call me naive and maybe this is my very, very positive impression of Canada, but it was talking about these very, very violent and wanted men from gangs within Vancouver that this was this was pretty much a drug hit some sort of gang violence whether a drug deal gone wrong or some uh past uh you know grievances that led to murder but like I did not think there was gangs in Canada. <laughs> I just thought they were, everyone was friendly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that at the top of the show, you're like, I spent 10 years in Canada. <laughs> I'm quite the expert. <laughs> well, maybe I just, uh, maybe that's because, yeah, it shows how big of a bubble ski towns are that I had no idea mm. that gangs have existed. Yeah, I don't know. This was surprising. I do also feel like maybe you jinxed all of Canada by last month opening, you're like, let's do a, the most Canadian news story. And like, here we are. Yeah. Talking about so gun violence. Send your complaints to Cody Townsend. Yeah. Sorry, Canada. Give me more sorry, stories Canada. about maple syrup heists and stuff, you know, right, like, and, like yeah. that kind of stuff. That, that's and the good Canadian stories. Wildlife, letting local townspeople go ride bikes instead of work, that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's the Canadian news stories yeah. we want. So hopefully next month. So in this, in the meantime, it was the least Canadian news story. Um, 
So coming into our next thing, this is was your idea. Um, it seems like it's mm. starting to take off, but we're going with Mountain Town advice. Yeah, appreciate all the people who wrote in. We got some pretty interesting ones here, I think. Uh, so we're going to actually read a few. So first of all, from Willie, <laughs> message just says, Dear Blister People. I love that. Dear Blister People, I have a question for Mountain Town Advice. Where should I go be a ski bum this winter? Preferably in the U.S. so I can work. I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this, but I will defer to you, Cody. Thoughts on where Willie should go ski bum in this winter? Yeah, it's a that's a tough question. I had to think about it quite a lot. Um, you know, and this is framed in a whole different world than the kind of the typical ski bum as we've known or is the the mythical ski bum that we were, you know, grew up with. Um, I will say, I don't know if you read Jeremy Evans um had a book about like kind of the death of the ski bum. Came out like 7 8 years ago and it was talking about how corporate mountain towns are pushing away ski bums, which I actually took issue you with because I thought I was like, no, I, all my buddies are diehard ski bums. It's just becoming a little bit more difficult, but like ski bums are ski bums and they're going to be there no matter what. And maybe they live in a bit more squalor, have a little shittier car and work more jobs than they used to, but they're going to be ski bums. So the ski bum, in my opinion, is alive and well. It's just maybe a little bit more hidden as it used to be. Um, it used to be, you can be a ski bum and still show up at the bar every night. Now it's a little more expensive to do that. But anyways, I digress. When it comes to this question, what it really made me think about is getting away from the typical mountain towns. So not going to the Jacksons, the Park Cities, the Vales, all those places, starting to look off the beaten path a little bit. Because if you think about what is your goal? Um, I'm going to assume it's to live cheaply and ski as many days as possible. So in order to do that, you have to not work that much and have cheap housing. Um, so to me, like looking off the beaten path, as long as you're not looking for like, hey, we're going to go to the places that used to line the the pages of Powder Magazine with the deepest pow in the world. Um, as long as you're not seeking for that, go to the places that are a little off the beaten path. So like I started thinking about some the towns that I would maybe go to if I was in that stage and like places like Sandpoint, Idaho, um, skiing Schweitzer, you know, it's a good mountain, like a good snowpack. Um, there's plenty of places pretty spread out there. I actually looked at some of the rental prices up there, decently affordable. Um, places like Missoula, Montana, it's not necessarily a ski town. They have one ski area there. And then there's a couple of within pretty close driving shot. Um, Looking for towns like that, the the one place, though, I would say that I would be a ski bum at and I fell in love with was Taos, New Mexico. Um, and I don't know, you live there, skied there. But if I I feel like that place has just enough spread out, has just enough mountain culture, is a rad ski area. Um, that's a place where I feel like you could be a great ski bum at. What do you think? Well, interesting. Taos had not actually occurred to me. And here's why. I found myself thinking quite so if you can solve for this then then Taos is back in the game I think but a couple of things I'm thinking about I mean every mountain town that I'm aware of is looking for staff right now Yes that is true I think this is maybe the good news right like if you are a hard working ski bum I feel like you ought to be able to 
do with like minimal research, identify a few spots that you might be interested in. And then if I were you, I'd be looking for jobs where you can work afternoons and evenings, right? Keep those mornings freed up, folks. Um, So if you are on point, you show up on time, you're good at the work, that I actually think it's a pretty good time. It's not like there's no jobs in mountain towns. There's lots of people looking for good for good workers. The other thing that I was thinking a lot about was thinking about towns that have really good public transportation yep. or jobs or something if if it's not specifically public transportation like good carpool scenes because gas isn't cheap right now and the idea that you're going to be able to live inexpensively like really close to a mountain that might be a bit of a reach and so you know here in the gunnison valley we have what i think is an a plus public transportation system you can get dropped off right at the ski area starting down in gunnison get dropped off right at the ski area and it's a fantastic system so i would look into towns that have either great carpooling options but like you don't want to spend a lot of time or your money getting to and from your ski area so the thing with taos that's where at least when i was there I don't like the public transportation wasn't really in place. I'm not sure about the carpool culture. So there, I think you'd have to live right at the ski area. But you do bring up the point that everywhere is looking for workers right now. Everywhere is looking for work. And like you can get good paying work, like being a bartender. You know how I know friends that are just working as bartenders right now, just as side hustles because they're making bank because they don't have staff there so like Mm -hmm. so i think that right there maybe it's the easiest time to be a ski bum right now honestly i mean i don't know if i'll say easiest but man people need good workers so willie we don't know what your background is what your you know particular skill set is but man yeah i i i would kind of pick your top three to five places and start making some phone calls and um, to specific companies and just say, hey, I can come in, help in these ways. I'm going to kill it. If you can impress that upon those people, I feel like this is doable, even though like, yes, housing is difficult. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Yeah, that the transportation angle too. I didn't necessarily think of that. I was trying to think more in the terms of just off the beaten path, but I think that is really, really clutch because in my list would be South Lake Tahoe because it can be pretty affordable to live in South Lake Tahoe, especially compared to North Lake Tahoe. Like I would say, unfortunately, probably need to stay away from North Lake Tahoe. It's far harder to find housing here and transportation could be tough, but South Lake Tahoe, it's cheap. But unless you're skiing Heavenly, which is right there, you're most likely trying to ski Kirkwood, and that's a 45-minute drive. And there is no public transportation there, and the carpool culture is not very good there um, because there's kind of quite a dispersed population. So um, I think transportation, that's that's a good one to look in. I like it. We should solicit. So listeners, if you know of communities where you think the kind of public transportation or carpool culture is kind of on point, let us know. Yeah. Or, or if you're a business owner 
and you're like, hey, Willie, if you're sharp, we're looking for staff and help, you know, feel free to fill up our comments section on the website or, um, you know, send us some direct messages or something and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll connect you with, uh, with Willie here. But, um, yeah, good, good thoughts. And I mean, probably a relevant question for a whole lot of folks out there and, um, well, we'll see. Totally. Uh, I'll steal your line. Where are we going next? <laughs> <laughs> Next Mountain Town advice question comes in from Tim. This is an interesting one. The food available in Mountain Town groceries, especially the produce, because of transport distances, etc., seems to always be lacking. Do you have any strategies to finding slash keeping better food? I recall one Granby, Colorado nurse telling me she kept a small greenhouse precisely for this reason. European alpine towns seem to have an entirely different cuisine with a lot of preserved meats, cheeses as a result. Any thoughts of food growing or seeking out, etc. would be greatly appreciated. That's Tim from Colorado. Yeah, I love the European angle here because he mm. actually brings up a thought that I had. Um, I remember my first time kind of spending time in France and, you know, France, it's cuisine capital of the world. It's got the best food and all, you know, it has that moniker. And then I remember going into mountain towns and you're pretty much eating cheese, potatoes, sausage, ham, and chicken. And that's it. Like nothing else. And the menus at every single restaurant in the Alps were the same. Like you get tartiflette, you get uh, half chicken and French fries, you can get some steak ash, you can get... Uh, 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 a risotto maybe, and then maybe some, uh, fondue or uh rocklet. That's about it. Like nothing else. And I was like, man, I thought France had good food. And then the more time I started spending there, I remember spending my first spring in France and all of a sudden there's fresh vegetables everywhere. And all of a sudden local, like I would go to friends' houses and there'd be fresh vegetables on the plate. And it was like really heavy with like, all of a sudden you go everywhere and there's only Ericover, only green beans and everyone's eating green beans. And I started realizing it was like, oh, they eat very seasonally here. And there's the, they don't even think about trying to preserve vegetables and produce in a certain way or shipping it like we do from Mexico. Yeah. They have an yeah. entirely different culture and they're just like, no, it's the winter. We eat cheese, we eat potatoes and we eat meat. And then in the summer is when we eat all our vegetables. So I found it interesting because I was thinking, it was like, well, is it our, just our demands as Americans for produce year round to have avocados in January? Um, that is kind of distorting our perceptions of food. Um, and then thinking like, well, I mean, it is healthy to eat vegetables as much as you can. But I also think like, well, French people seem to be pretty healthy compared to Americans. So maybe there's something to this, uh, that seasonal eating is the most important. So my advice is, well, either eat seasonally or move to California, because I would say <laughs> my issues with this are not I don't have these issues. Uh, we have some local comp uh, like New Moon Grocery here in Tahoe City and in Truckee. Uh, we live right in California and we get a lot of seasonal um, produce from California just down the hill. Comes up a couple hours and 
their vegetables are pretty good. And I'm a kind of produce snob. I go to farmer's markets. My wife especially is a produce snob. So yeah, yeah, she's like her favorite thing in the world is to go to the farmer's market in Santa Cruz. And I will say like the farmer's market in Santa Cruz has some of the best vegetables you've ever had in your life. It's unbelievable. So um, I would say like two things, either change your diet or move to California. (laughs) Hey, I got to do a quick ad read here, Cody. Uh, This episode of Reviewing the News is presented by the state of California. (laughs) And its official representative, Cody Townsend. (laughs) That's right. All right. Ad read over. I do actually think that's an interesting comment about like be more seasonal. Though I will say our good friend, Kara Williard, expert boot fitter and reviewer, etc., Kara lives in Gunnison, Colorado. She is a regenerative farmer. And I've been meaning to have Kara come on and do like kind of just a conversation about like growing food in mountain towns. She's kind of exactly the right person to discuss this topic with. So Tim, thanks to your question, I will definitely get Kara on an episode of the Blister podcast and we'll talk about some of this. But she and her partner, Zach, have a very, very cool uh, setup down in Gunnison, and they are farming there. And I think Kara would have some tips about how some of the rest of us might be able to do some things along, whether it's sort of simple greenhouse stuff or what her suggestions and recommendations would be, you know, for those of us who don't live in the great state of California. There you go. And I will say there is, it is cool. Like the backcountry magazine had an article about like, you know, professional skiers and professional snowboarders getting into farming. I know Chris Rubens um, and his partner, Jesse started yeah. a farm in Revelstoke yeah. very specifically because of food security issues in Revelstoke. Yeah. Um, so there's only two, there's, pretty much one road in um, from either side and that road gets closed a lot and he remembers being like all of a sudden closed one summer for three days and all of a sudden the grocery stores were empty so um, you know maybe there's more of that in the future too Um, I'd be curious to hear you know and it's some actual expert advice as opposed to ours um, from Kara so um, (laughs) I'll I'll listen to that pod and uh, then come up with some advice for for Tim okay we got to move on I'm going to save this a few of these other questions we got for perhaps for future episodes, you know, when you and I have nothing to talk about, it doesn't really seem to happen, but, um, okay. Going to what we're reading and watching. What do you got? I have currently been obsessed with the show on Amazon, the boys. Have you watched it? I started it. Yeah. I've started it. You told me you were watching this and, and so here we are. So I, I'll just say I made, I think I'm like three episodes in three to four Mm -hmm. and I, I'm not, I didn't get sucked in the way apparently you have. So I'm curious, tell me more what you're. Well, I'm kind of still a sucker for comic book movies. And not necessarily the super mainstream ones. Like, 
they got to have a little bit of a, a twist to them. So like, you know, if when it, I think most people would say that, but like the, uh, the Christian Bale, uh, Batman's were the best comic book iteration movies. I thought, and you, I think they have need something more than just the super pop and Marvel comic universe kind of Iron Man stuff like that stuff. I'm like, ah, okay, whatever I watch it, but it doesn't like float my boat that much. And that's what the boys really does is it's takes the superhero story and has a full twist on it and the whole thing about it i found is it's like a huge satire against corporate culture against celebrity culture against the marvel comic universe in general um and it posits these kind of these superheroes if they ever exist in our world as we're living it like they are run and owned by a corporation that's similar to like Disney in many ways that's producing movies and makes them huge celebrities and is constantly measuring their Q ratings and their favorability ratings among demographics. And then if those people and what if they have as much power and celebrity as they do, what would they do? And this posits that pretty much just like anything where they say that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely they become quite corrupt. And I've just been finding it pretty damn entertaining. Um, the characters in it are incredible. Um, it's hyper violent, which I, I'm not always into hyper violent, um, but it is like kind of comic book hyper violent. So it can desensitize you to just like nasty violence or whatnot. But I think it's just like in many ways, really satirical in a very thought provoking way. Um, and I've been pretty, pretty damn into it. And it's just straight up entertaining. The plot lines are good. They, they drive and the characters are good. How deep are you into it now? Uh, midway through season two. Okay. Cause I think like in theory, it's all super interesting. Like the premise and where you can go. I think I didn't find myself completely sucked in in those first couple of episodes with like the execution. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard that it sort of continues to find its footing like as a show. And so a TV critic I really respect kind of wasn't into it initially and then like kind of stuck with it. And it like allegedly gets better or more interesting. So if you're already there, yeah. great. I think I might. So I'll stick with it and yeah. Um, this is a good nudge. Yeah, I was I was sucked in on the pilot, though. Let's say that I thought the pilot, you know, right off the bat when I'm not going to spoil it at all if anyone doesn't happen. But there's a few things and a few lines that were like laugh out loud funny and a few things that's just shocking. And you're like, wow, this is not mm. your typical superhero story. And mm. uh, I mean, yeah. the comic book that it was based on, I believe, was written in the 2000s. So it's very modern huh. interpretation of comic book story it's not like your classic uh comic book characters that were invented in 1960 mm -hmm. i didn't realize it actually had first been an actual yeah. comic series yeah. called okay. the boys huh. so and yeah. okay no, it's been i've been i've been finding it pretty fun and pretty interesting um but then there's this show that i i really want to get into because i don't think anyone has said this is not amazing but it's what you're you're talking about these days and i i actually yeah. don't know anything about it you don't yeah that brings me to absolutely my current favorite show it's called the bear and i found it on hulu 
I didn't find it. I had, again, some people I really respected were like, oh my God, this show's amazing. And it's, I believe it's just eight episodes and they're like 30 minutes or less each. So this is, and that's all we got. So there will be a second season of The Bear, thank God. But it is just very briefly, and I will give like nothing away. This is the most basic sort of premise. Um, It is a story about... uh, Well, a person who was a chef at the French Laundry and ends up coming back to Chicago basically to run a sandwich shop in Chicago that his brother had left in various states of disarray. And that's kind of the premise. But those of you who have kind of read some of the commentary about this, I mean, I've seen some things where people are like, this is maybe the most accurate depiction of what it's actually like to work in a restaurant. And I'm not sure that I, I've, I've worked in a restaurant. I don't know that I'm willing to say like that's absolutely 100% true, but it is such a compelling premise. The acting is so good and there's no question. I'm, I'm just always going to be a sucker for shows set in Chicago also, one of the best soundtracks in recent memory going on. And so, but all I really mean by that is anytime you introduce Wilco's Via Chicago into a series, I, I'm, it will be easily in my top three series, like probably ever. But you have to watch this. If you care about food at all, you should definitely watch this. If you care about really interesting co-worker dynamics and sibling dynamics i think probably all of those groups will find something very much to like in this yeah well i don't know we probably talked about it on the show but i'm like a sucker for cooking food world restaurant world thing i mean i cut oh dude you're gonna yeah yeah, i i cut my teeth in restaurants i like worked in restaurants since i was 14 um up Hmm. until about 25 i've worked in every position at a restaurant except for dishwasher i managed to skip that one but i've worked as a cook i've worked as a chef i've worked as a waiter i've worked as a bartender as a manager so um i love restaurant stuff so this time's right up my alley and um on that note actually one um you know cooking show that i really like and i've only watched a couple of the episodes because they're kind of just like you want to it's not a series and you just occasionally watch it is ugly delicious with david chang um yeah really yeah, yeah, yeah. well done so well done i love david chang yeah. i love david chang so much yeah you know why i mostly love david chang because david freaking chang defends domino's thin crust pizza and i will ride and die with domino's thin crust I'd never get to eat it anymore, actually. But yeah, my guy, David Chang, standing up for Domino's Pizza. I'm right there with you, David. Great show. Great show. Yeah. So, but then the next thing we want to talk about is you finally watched it, dude. You finally watched it. Well, okay. Well, let me let me do this real fast. Okay. I did also watch the documentary Roadrunner okay. about Anthony Bourdain. Um, and I got to say, I I feel like I'm the latest to the anthony Bourdain party yeah you are um i really am and so but i'm making up for lost time the the documentary is very well done uh i'm actually most of the way through kitchen confidential right now also the last person on earth to read kitchen confidential yeah, i read that like the 20 biggest, years ago 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'm a late, I, I'm a late, late bloomer, Cody. Um, first of all, what a phenomenal writer oh, so Bourdain is. He's so good, and um, yeah. So enjoying that. Um, Roadrunner is, um, you know, Bourdain was a complicated person, and Roadrunner doesn't shy away from that. And um, if have you seen it? No, yet? I, ha- have you seen I ha- actually haven't. And I love Anthony Bourdain. Like I said, I read yeah. Kitchen Confidential when I was like 18. And when I was working in, in uh, before it was kind of a thing. I like, I don't know, because I was working in kitchens that I was like, oh, here's a book about cooking. And then it was just like blown away by how amazing this book was. And in many ways accurate, like even a restaurant in New York City had similar aspects to the restaurants I was working in in Santa Cruz. And you're like, yeah, I can relate to this. So, um, but no, he's such a phenomenal writer. Like you can, you could see it in every single one of his episodes. Um, the, uh, you know, the, of his travel episodes of just the way he frames things, the way he frames the stories. Like you're like, you know, that he's writing these monologues and he is crafting these stories and he is just an amazing storyteller. It's such a, he, I don't know. I, I loved his philosophy. I loved the way he looked at life and it, it was only a bummer that he was probably a tortured soul because of that philosophy and the way he saw life. Hmm. You should definitely watch yeah, it. I yeah, definitely you need will. to watch Roadrunner. All right. But yeah, kind of the main event. No disrespect to the bear because the bear is like my favorite thing. But I've been complaining to you about this <laughs> for quite a while. I finally saw Top Gun Maverick. Finally. This film has not been playing within a hundred miles of Crested Butte. <laughs> and and um, I recently was out to Sun Valley and I was like, maybe I like find a night while I'm out there and I'm just going to like, you know, run off by myself and go like finally catch this. And I was pretty busy out there. So that didn't happen. But I was in Denver for a couple days and I went and caught solo a late night screening of Top Gun Maverick just to be able to like cross this off the list. I'm so glad I saw it. I'm so glad this is done. I, I'm so happy. We, I mean, <laughs> it mainly leaves you happy, but I, I want to, I'm actually right? really curious to hear, like if you were to review it as a movie, because there's so many emotional okay. elements to it. I think that we, yeah, as yeah. like our age generation who grew up with the first yeah. Top Gun and, you know, personally, that was yeah. the first movie I ever bought. You know, I bought it on VHS from the rental shop used and I was like so stoked on it. So there's a lot of that nostalgia that just makes you feel good and young again. But as a film, what did you think yeah. of it? Okay. Well, first of all, nostalgia is the single most important word, right? Like this, I mean, I think, I mean, the response, everybody's going to see this movie. So uh, I I haven't actually heard commentary on like what younger people Mm -hmm. uh, who are seeing the film thought. There's no getting away from the nostalgia element of this. But that said, I got to say, the first almost maybe the first half of the film, maybe not quite, it didn't maybe take that long. Maybe it was more the first 30 minutes or so. I was like, oh my God, they are keeping this so tonally, sim- tonally similar to the first one with kind of the like exact same kind of like, of course that would be the, you know, the Admiral's response to the kind of, you know, hotshot young cadet, right? Like, this is not this exercise from the jump in, like, (laughs) elevated screenwriting, 
You know what I mean? Totally. And so I was almost initially taken aback, like, oh my God, we really did just go back to the 80s and we're going to act like there was, there's nothing tonally, we're no more grown up now. That was kind of my take in the first portion of it. And then I was like, well, that's fine. I mean, they're kind of, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. But then I have to say, I think the second half of the film, I think starts to play in some different registers than than anything that was going on in the original film, right? And so I kind of had to like, it was a little disorienting because it's like, this isn't like this amazing, this isn't David Mamet screenwriting, you know, or something like that. But I think like the film sort of picks up and there's more layers to it as sort of as you go, in addition to just being like, I don't know, sick freaking jet fighter sequences. There's also that. I know. And I thought the same thing. I watched it. I think we might have talked about it or I forgot if we did talk about it, but I thought it was two different movies. There was a first half and there was a second half. And the first half actually to me was like a four out of 10. I actually didn't care for it that much. It started to play too much when they're like re-singing Great Balls of Fire. I'm like sitting there going like, really? We we have to sit through three minutes of exactly we know what's going to happen. And he's going to seem like, oh my God, his son is playing the same (laughs) song and the same bar and doing it in the same way and looks the same. And you're just like, okay, whatever. And I thought it was really slow. And because tonally it was so on point, like you said, I was just like, this is ridiculous. Um, And especially even the like, uh, the, the opening scene and what happens in there and, and it, when the plane blows up and he comes into a town, you're just like, okay, this is suspending belief so far that I'm just like, yeah. I'm not into it because you went so yeah. far away. And then the second half of the movie, I thought was a nine out of 10 for an action movie. I, you're just gripped uh-huh. and you're like, this yeah. is all time. And I thought they did a really good job of, you know, when Maverick flies the course, and just like proves to everyone that it's doable. And just then the action sequence are just absolutely next level. Totally next level. But it also does start to get, I don't know, either I just became more of a sucker at, you know, for like the genre that we were definitely in. But um, yeah, I, and I'm open to that. I'm I'm totally open to that. By the way, you know this fact. This is there has never been a sequel that has taken so long to come out from the original. So this sequel came out 36 years after the original. That is apparently there has never been a sequel that has come out that much longer ever. So I don't know. Maybe maybe. You know, and this isn't, this is not some um, high art film watching in the first half or the second half, but maybe we, you and I were either settling into like the genre we were in again, or maybe they could have done a better job on the first half. I don't know. Yeah, I think they could have done a little bit better a job, um, but ultimately like everyone walks out of that movie, I think, happy and stoked and it brings you back to that like that was a fun time and i didn't necessarily Mm want to have to think for two hours um i just wanted to be like wow that was awesome but um (laughs) uh yeah i wonder what's going to be next like what's going to be the the next 36 year old um millennial focused uh sequel that we're going to see because obviously they're probably going to get going on this. I, I, I almost guarantee that they're going to be like, huh. I don't know, like what are they going to make clueless again? 
uh, sequel to Billy <laughs> Madison or something. <laughs> Tombstone 2. <laughs> well, okay, I got one for you. Actually, this is the answer. You want to know the answer, Cody? What is the answer, Jonathan? It's obviously... Because you got to think about what other films in the 80s could rival freaking Top Gun. Bizarrely, right? Like, mm -hmm. for, like... People going back, like, really? This was, like, the most important film of the 80s? Well, no, not the most important. But in terms of, like, its cultural, like, seismic waves that came from it, here's here's the film for you, Cody. It's E.T. E.T.? It's the sequel to E.T. Yeah, that is true. That could be a good one. What about uh, what about Indiana Jones? Well, they've been making... Oh, that's there's right. There's, like, 13 Indiana Jones movies. But there is? I thought there was only the three. I haven't seen any of <laughs> I don't know. 13-3. I haven't seen okay. any of them. But uh ET. But yeah, I think the answer the answer is ET. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that could be a good one. I know I'm trying to think. Like obviously I was like six years old in the eighties, so I don't totally remember. But I mean, I guess the other ones that could be there was Scarface. Was that an eighties movie? Do we see a reboot of that? That seemed like it was very culturally relevant for a long time. I don't think that had the kind of popular like Everybody saw Top Gun, that is didn't true. they? Yeah, they, yeah. Like I saw, I didn't see Scarface actually till like two years ago. <laughs> well, really? Like that was I was a little young. Uh, yeah, I don't think like kids were out like watching Scarface. Yeah, or if they were, oh, that's... Back to the Future. It's got to be Back to the Future. But there's already been. There is. There's a back. To, yes. Wow. What's happened? Well, no, to you? but there's you like the working in the backs of restaurants. But there was a couple that came out, and then they're done since the 80s and early 90s okay i guess i was thinking pure sequel gotcha. like it came out once now we're gonna see okay yeah. but yeah you're just rebooting all the yeah there's a what back to the future two three four yeah i guess so i don't know i obviously i watched the first one and that's the only one i remember i do remember there was multiple <laughs> ones but like i was there uh is there a, a sequel to ferris bueller's day off oh my god that's another acceptable answer. I mean, now movie. you're now you're hitting real close to home for me, though. Yeah. But so if they if it's a bad version, I mean, that's really the most incredible thing to really say. Top Gun Two is actually probably a better movie than the first one. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to separate what you remember of it and its impact on your life. Like, you know, I always say with it comes to ski movies, like you, your most important one is probably the first one you ever watched. Mm. Um, you know, and for me, that's very true. It's like those first, my favorite ski movies are the ones that it was like, oh, this is the first time I saw a Warren Miller movie. Yeah. Oh, this was the first time I saw an MSP movie. So um, it's hard to separate that. Um, I'd have to go back and watch Top Gun again. Yeah, but just as a better film. Yeah. I think I'd be willing to say Top Gun 2 is a better film. Like, the original is the original. Yeah. It, it was seismic for whatever weird reason. There's no way Ferris Bueller's Day Off 2 could be better than the original. No. I'm, not, I'm not prepared to believe no, that. No, there, there wouldn't be. So, so yeah. <laughs> anyway... Well, there, there's what everybody comes to reviewing the news for. Is, 10 minutes on Top Gun. Yeah, totally. Well, I think the whole world is pretty obsessed with it. So we're kind of talking about something that is culturally relevant right now. Okay. Okay. But um, I did. I really enjoyed it. 
I don't know if I'll get back to a movie theater to see it again. I doubt I will, but I am looking forward to watching it again if it ever goes to streaming. Maybe this will be the only film now that won't ever go to streaming. <laughs> Cruise will just insist that it only lives on in movie theaters till the end of time. That's yeah, the only thing that's that keeping happening. theaters afloat is Top Gun. That's right. Tom Cruise. So. Well, hey, man, I should probably let you get going. I think that's a wrap for us. Let's see. Thanks to everybody who wrote in with Mountain Town advice questions. That seemed to work out. We still don't have like a specific dedicated email set up for that, but uh, you can leave us those comments. Go to the contact us page on the Blister website. That's probably the best way to do this. Uh, so go to the contact us portion of the Blister website and submit your Mountain Town advice question. Better chance of it getting overlooked if you send a DM to us on Instagram or something. But you know, if you want to roll the dice, go for it. And other than that, Cody, I hope your August is a good one. I'm sure I'll be talking with you. Yep. And uh, I look forward to the next time we review the news and you know movies like Top Gun. Maybe we'll just talk about Top Gun again. Yeah, we, we can do a full, full breakdown of the movie, <laughs> scene by scene analysis of Top Gun. <laughs> Perfect. Next, reviewing the news is just the boys and a full breakdown of Top Gun. Totally. We'll, we'll finally, <laughs> we'll get under that 100 listener uh, number. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right, man. On that note, I'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Later, John. Well, that's it for this edition of Reviewing the News and the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week, including we're going to be dropping a teaser to a new Blister Podcast that should be going up Wednesday. But this is a whole new thing we got going here at Blister. And it drops this week. If the strikingly handsome Justin Bob and I get our act together, it'll drop this Wednesday. And uh, yeah, it's a big new development at Blister. We're excited about this one. And we think a lot of you are going to find this pretty interested. So we're looking forward to it. That's all I'm going to say for now. Do check out our Off the Couch podcast. That drops every Tuesday. Our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. That drops every Thursday. And of course, Gear 30. That's on Fridays. So that's what we've got for you. Take good care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>